Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. My name's Dota Doherty, and in this podcast series, I will be interviewing investors, advisors, entrepreneurs, and recruiters who are based all over the world. And we will be discussing how to set up and operate a world-class recruitment company. Today, I'm interviewing Andy Morrill. He is the MD for Oscar. They are a tech and engineering recruitment firm which are based in Houston, Manchester, and have just opened up an office in London. He's been with them 11 years. He's been in the industry for nearly 20 years. And he's a great guy. And we had a great chat about his career and, you know, what he sees as the key differences of what's happened in the last 20 years and what he thinks will be happening over the next period of time. Covered a lot of interesting topics and... You know, he's really excited about the US market and he sees a massive pull towards there from a lot of UK recruitment companies. We talked about the benefits of networking with your competitors and sharing information with them to improve your own business. And just a lot of stuff on how recruitment's changing and what you will have to do to adapt with it. You know, we've always had the old adage in recruitment that when you leave your business, when you leave our business, you're dead to me. Oh, they were rubbish anyway. You know, oh yeah, listen, there's something wrong with me. He had to leave. Um, but that's changed. The world of work's changed and we need to adapt with it. And if somebody leaves your company at 21 or 27 or whatever age they are, and they've done a good job, slagging them off to make sure that you don't lose business in the short term, it's just a big mistake. You know, like let them go, keep in touch because someday you might want them to come back and the information that they learn from their journey outside of your company may benefit your business in the long run. And I think a lot of studies on millennials and whatever that generation who are, who are, who are coming next shows that we will have more and more jobs in our career. So it only makes sense to keep people on side. All right. And he's a great lad, by the way. I hope you all enjoy this one. He, very open and honest and approachable. And I'm sure he is to work for as well. Um, but over to Andy. Hello. Andy, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Great to get a chance to speak to you. Yeah, and yourself? Tell me, where am I calling you right now? Where are you? Um, I'm sat in um, about an eight foot by eight foot meeting room in our head office in Manchester. All right. Deadly. Lovely, lovely. And have you done any interesting travel with business recently? Um, not particularly. I'm, I'm heading to our, our relatively new London office on Thursday and then hoping to get back out to the States, ideally this side of Christmas, but um, a little bit difficult towards the end of the year because they have Thanksgiving and everything tends to shut down for a month, really. But uh, we'll see. So I'm really keen to get into your story. How did it all begin? With um, recruitment, not 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 your childhood. <laughs> well, I suppose it feels like it merges one into the other. I've been doing it that long, to be honest with you. Um, 
but um, I like I'm, I'm probably very very vanilla answer, but I fell into recruitment as most people tend to do. Um, I kind of came out of university with very average um, grades, having not fulfilled my potential. Maybe. <laughs> what did doing, you study? Um, mainly the student union, to be honest. Um, it was it was a business degree. Uh, it was it was quite generic, quite well spread, but. Uh, like most sort of lads, eighteen to twenty-one, I wasn't really engaged until my um, my year in industry, which I thoroughly enjoyed, which kind of led me towards wanting to get out into the real world and work. Yeah, I did a business degree as well. Back then, I'm not sure how practical they were. Um, like we, 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 I, I always remember studying like the theory of autocratic management and a few other things, and it just feels it just felt even dated back then. Yeah, very much so. I think, in fairness, I think it's the kind of stuff where you'd probably use it a little bit further on in your career. But once you jump into an entry level position, um, you know, nobody's asking you to, to talk about the strategy of the business or anything like that, are they? So I think a lot of it is a little bit redundant for a period of time. And then by the time you use it, of course, you know, um, the world changes. Yeah. And I suppose we're our industry, the great thing about it is that a 22 year old can get into management two or three years in, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it, truly meritocratic. Which uh, The good thing is, it, is, if you find the right place, it does what it says in the tin, right? So tell me, early days, you joined a company called Senator Associates. Who were they? Uh, they were, at the time, very small, independent uh, IT recruiter, uh, set up by a, a couple, actually, that used to work for S3, uh, Computer Futures. Um, they were in a place called Cheadle Hume, sleepy little town uh, in Cheshire. Um, and they um, they set up permanent IT. We're doing really really well. They took another experienced guy from Futures to set up the contract division, um, and myself alongside an, another guy who's a rookie were the first trainees on the new contract division that they were setting up. Why why did you why did you join a no brand recruitment company? You know, it seems like a bit of a risk for a young guy who's in the centre of lots of other companies. He's got a degree. Um, I think, well, this was 2000, right? Um, and I, I found the job by circling adverts in the paper. So it, I don't think that it, uh, recruitment was as prevalent as it is today. In fact, it was nowhere near. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I, I remember going for the interview and you go because you've heard about all this money you can earn and the progress you can make. And the first thing you do is you look at the cars in the car park and you look at the sort of what people are wearing, you know, to, is this real? Um, and and it, it seemed very real. Um, and there were some young guys in there who demonstrably were doing really well. You know, and, you, and you look at them, you think, I can do that. I want a piece of that. Mm. Uh, and it was as simple as that. And I, I was brought in, very charismatic sort of owner, uh, and just brought me straight in, really. What type of cars were in the car park? Um, there were there were these little sort of Mercedes. I'm, I'm not a car man. Golf GTI Mercedes. <laughs> you know, it, it was it wasn't Lamborghini or anything like that. Yeah. But to to a 22 year old who's used to driving a 1,000 pound Vauxhall Nova, it was pretty impressive. I think I still have a, a 1,000 pound motor. Okay, so 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 early days, 2000. I, I I graduated in 2001 from my undergrad and. I remember going into work, into a sales job. The, the internet wasn't really being used to its full extent, even then. What was, what was, it, like, what was it like recruiting? We're, we're, there wasn't any LinkedIn or anything around, was there? Um, no, no LinkedIn. Um, one, one 
uh, job boards served the entirety of the IT industry and uh, end employers weren't allowed on there. Um, so the, the whole concept of recruitment was based around sales. Um, you know, any, any strategy to do with candidate uh, attraction, acquisition was, was kind of irrelevant because you put out an advert, you got a flood of people coming through. And a lot of the time it was wading through the bad ones mm. to, get, to get the good ones. You'd then write them in, your, you'd write the details down in your book. Um, you know, and a lot of our marketing was done by sending the old class mail shot through the post. Um, you know, plenty an evening was spent sat in the office, you know, sort of licking envelopes and, and, and putting stamps on them and stuff like that. So it was very old school. How crazy is it that recruitment in 2000 sounds like recruitment in 1970? And <laughs> like, <laughs> we're in such a different world now, 18 years later. It, it's 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 just it just blows my mind. Tell me tell me how long did it take you to get good at it? Um, I guess that's really subjective. I mean, I was I was sort of progressed into consultancy after about six weeks, um, which was a, a bit of a record. But I think that was a necessity rather than anything else. And I actually then um, went back. I was I was a consultant, you know, running your own desk for about four or five months, and I did what the guys would now relatively well but at the time I, I didn't feel like I found my feet and I actually went back to resourcing again for a good six seven eight months till I felt like I really really knew what I was doing um, but I would say being absolutely competent and knowing I was competent I, I'd say probably 18 months two years in all honesty mm. um, I, I think that's the stage where you make calls expecting a, a positive reaction rather than hoping um, and I, I, for me, um, it was the first thing that I'd done in my life that I wasn't naturally able to pick up, you know, kind of school, easy, sports, easy. Recruitment felt extremely unnatural. And I, I nearly left the industry a good three, four, five times in my first year, without a doubt. Wow, that's crazy. I think I, I, was, the, I was the opposite. I kind of did the, the school thing in there in all of that. But uh, the recruitment thing came pretty easy to me. Maybe it's because I, I got it when I was 27. I think you've you've also got the Irish charm, right? So that helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, so you were uh, so so it starts go it's going well for you. Did you get progressed quickly? Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I took on my first um, my first trainee in two thousand and one to work under me. He's now director of that business, so he's doing okay. Um, and it, it it then started to to come naturally to me. I think. Managing other people and having your processes be whiter than white uh, and showing them how to win, I think, reinforces that you, one, know how to do the job well and, and, and two, you can pass that on. And it, it, I think it gives you even more confidence. I think without a doubt, I, I'm, I'm not a charismatic, natural, salesy type person, but what I'm good at is finding a framework and, and really wanting to win. And I think that, for me, is probably easy more easy to scale than just saying go and charm that guy over there mm. um and that's the part of the job i really enjoyed and i think my career accelerated once i started managing people as opposed to just running a desk where i was i was always very good but never amazing what what was it that separated you from being very good and a process driven recruiter to that guy at the top of the room that beats his chest and and just kills it um, what, what do you mean at the time or now? Well, just, just if you could look back, 
what 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 were the characteristics that 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 kind of did differentiated because you you're you're, you're self analyzing here uh, so i'm i'm interested in in what what are those things that 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 you thought made the top top performer um i think a, a, a real unwavering lack of self doubt helps um, I think what, what I've found is, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm the brightest guy in the, in the world because by crikey I'm not, but I think what I've found over the years is that quite often the people that, that are relatively intelligent tend to have self-doubt and tend to analyse and potentially overanalyze, which can lead to procrastination and then a lack of actual activity. Mm. And sometimes it, it's it, less, less the case now, but certainly back then, I think blindly doing something always got more results than, than thinking about how to do something in the perfect way. Hmm. Um, and, but, but if you have a look at the, the people that were kind of top of the board as it goes back then, when I joined, they're not now in positions where they've progressed because I suppose that was a limitation or maybe the best use of the skill set. Yeah, I, I find, I've, I've definitely seen that as well. Like, so the... Definitely contract recruiters anyway. The ones that can just follow, 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 like, okay, bash out 50 calls, make it happen, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. And then sometimes I, I, see, I see on the other end of the scales that the, the, the recruiter who comes in and overthinks things can tie themselves in a knot. I think, Absolutely. So it's kind of the modern recruiter is trying to find that balance between both sides where you know, you channel out that self-doubt, but you still learn and think at the same time, but not overcomplicating it. It's a uh... yeah, and I think I think today, obviously, there there are there are exponential changes in the industry in in those eighteen years. But I think the changes now, be them either the way that the the market is adapted or or technological changes, I think are more than embracing the people that prefer to be targeted and prefer to be slightly more analytical and maybe more consultative than some guy still still bashing it out. However, without a doubt, activity of some form, as long as as long as it's intelligent and targeted, is always going to be a lot thereof, right? Sure. Tell me, so you were six and a half years with Senator and yes. you got up to contract services manager. Did did you feel like your your career had had stalled or hadn't hadn't progressed as fast as you wanted it to? Um, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really have many reference points. Um, we were tucked away in the time at Wilmslow, where there is there are quite a few recruitment businesses, but none of my friends were recruiters outside of my mates at work. I didn't really hang about with recruiters. Didn't really attend any recruitment orientated networking events or anything. So I kind of didn't really know. But what I did know is it was starting to feel a little bit samey day to day. Um, internally, the company was doing very well, but not really kind of growing where I could see that my career was going to trampoline forward. Um, and I, you have thoughts at that stage, setting up on your own, working for larger organizations. I'd had a couple of people sort of headhunt me and I'd courted their advances a little bit. And nothing was quite right until until the opportunity came to, to, to go away and do essentially what was a bit of a turnaround job at Oscar. Um, and, and let me just before I jump into the, the Oscar piece, there, it fascinates me that that you decided not to go out on your own. Do you think is that because the cost to launch what in your head what what I presume would have been a contract IT recruitment business? It, it's just that bit harder than if you were maybe a firm focused guy. Um, I, I didn't have a concern about 
doing that if I if I set up it, it would be perm to start with without a doubt because obviously very difficult to fund the contractors I think the things that held me back were, were fear in all honesty um because you you're now you know six and a bit years in you're probably five years in of earning good money three years in of earning very good money you're starting to be able to go right I can pay mortgages and, and you know and do stuff on a regular basis where when you first start earning good money I always think there's about about a year or two years lag before you feel like you're living the lifestyle of somebody that earns amount X amount, right? Because um, initially, you know, you, you, you throw it away or you're spending on debts or whatever it may yeah. be. And I think once, once you've got that level of, I suppose, comfort to a point, you know, you do think, crikey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mid to late 20s, I'm earning a hell of a lot of money compared to, to, to my mates. Um, do I really want to take that challenge um, and, and, and that risk, I suppose? Um, but the main thing for me, honestly, um, didn't envisage myself going starting from a bedroom and being on my own. Um, I get highly motivated by other people around me, and I, I know it's it's not ideal. But for me to sit in a room on my own for weeks, months, maybe before building it up, I think to be honest with you, probably petrified me because I, I very much feed off other people around me, and I, th- I suppose it comes back to that bit where my career advanced really when I had people around me that I could coach and help and mentor and move on. Uh, and, and going back to doing it on my own, I, I just didn't like my fire, to be honest with you. Yeah, so you, I, again, your self awareness is probably driving your decision making process. Uh, that's probably a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're. I think you're quite hard on yourself. Um, so, so you, you mentioned that Oscars was a turnaround job. Yes. Now, global company now. Give give us give us the spread of the size of it now. And then walk me through what it was like on day one. Uh, right, wow. Okay. So um, now we, we have circa 50 staff in Manchester, uh, a handful in London and, and 12 over in Houston. So we're, we're not huge, but we're, you know, we're doing our bit to, to grow, um, you know, incrementally. Um, at, at one point, we did have an office in Singapore, but we had to close that down when the oil price fell off a, a ledge. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we're, I suppose, what, medium size, right? Medium size, yeah. That, that's, that, I suppose that, 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 would be a, that would be a good way to describe it. So how many heads altogether? Uh, at the moment, we've got just under 70. Under 70, okay, yeah. And so, so, so there's around 70 now, three different offices. And walk me through what it was like day one. What, what's a turnaround job mean? Um, so... The organisation had been run by an MD who'd started it a few years earlier uh, and had had a, a little bit of a disagreement with the other owners and he'd done a couple of naughty things that I won't get into and, and I think basically he was told, go quietly or things could get very nasty for you. Um, so he went. Um, what, what we walked into was, and I kind of understand why, um, it was a bit of a disparate business. So, you know, you, you had one girl doing rhetoric couple of guys doing rail, a couple of guys doing oil, a uh, couple of guys doing IT, a um, uh, couple of guys doing sort of general engineering. And there was, there was no golden thread within the mm. business. Um, commissions seemed to change month on month to suit the senior people that were dictating what it was. Um, there was uh, it wasn't a company. It was a bunch of individuals who were kind of 
surviving. And, and, and to be fair, there were a couple of good people that, that were doing all right, but it felt like the whole thing was, was set up to serve those guys rather than to create an opportunity for everybody. What were you brought um, in to do initially? Um, I suppose in the roughest sense, grab it by the scruff of the neck and see what you can make of it. Um, and you're 27, we, are you? Um, I was 27. Yeah, 27. Okay, so, um, so, so let, like, let's set this scene here. You're 27. You've had a good run at a company, but you're still a young guy, especially in the eyes of people that are making good money, sitting on their laurels, doing, doing a bit of this, doing a bit of that, and cashing in. What was that experience? Like, how does... How does a young guy grab it by the scruff of the neck and go about making this happen? And like, like that, that must have been a tough job. Uh, it, it was tough because the, the people that were there, there was only a handful of people there. They were in a, a small little office in Didsbury, which is a suburb of Manchester, above a Bucky's and a, and a, a, a subway and a pub and stuff like that. And it was, it was very much a spit and sawdust operation. Um, but there were a couple of talented people there. Um, I think my job was to to work out who was talented, what we could build around them. But it was more to, I suppose, to set standards, to put in joined up processes so that it was a business that that moved um, very much like um, any organization should. You know, one bit pulls, it pulls the rest along with it rather than it just being this disparate group of people. Um, that, that that were kind of in it for different reasons. There was, there was no real kind of raison d'etre or, or or reason. You know, there was, there was nothing there that I think tied anybody together. It, albeit there were a couple of talented people, and the guy who'd been running it was a brilliant salesperson because I'd known him previously. But what he couldn't really do was scale up the business. It was a bit of a lifestyle thing for him, I guess. So, what was the first thing that you did? Um, First thing we did was interview everybody, uh, which uh, and got to know why they were there, what they were doing, um, how life was for them. But I think it became very clear that before that, it, it, the, I suppose the fallout before I came on board had been happening for quite a long time, and they'd been almost uh, brainwashed into sort of naturally hating whoever was coming in and to dismiss their new ideas because what they were doing already was best, I guess. Yeah, and self-protecting. Yeah, very much so. Look, you know, when we're backed into the corner, we all tend to come out fighting, right? And, you know, self-preservation is a natural instinct. So you, so you interviewed them first. You're kind of getting an idea as to, as to who, who you want to keep, how you don't. What, what's the next bit of that process to kind of go, how can, we, how can we exit these people or how can we kind of get them to exit? And... Walk us through that and and how that led you to forming the new profile of what you go after. Yeah. Well, I I think, I suppose the ease of it was you you come in and you you explain to people the standards you're setting and the processes you're going to put in place and why. Um, But unless you, you give them a real solid, tangible explanation of how it's going to help them, whatever they're there for, earnings, career potential, whatever else it may be, then they're not going to buy into it. Uh, and I, work, I worked out very quickly that I could explain lots of things about how I'd done it with my team and I'd grown their careers and stuff like that previously until I showed them no one was going to buy into it. So I think assisting them with their, their, their current desks, their issues, the, the solutions they needed, sorting out situations they've got specifically with candidates or clients, or maybe just sort of showing them a, a new direction. Mm-hmm. Once, they, once they get the results, they buy in. Or 
they don't buy in at all and they they'll, they'll leave of their own volition very very quickly and that happened and then a few people left before they kind of really give it the chance and i've spoken to a couple of them since and they kind of regret it and others i'm sure they're glad they went right so yeah and when you're doing that analysis on the desks and you're like in your head you've got you've got a bit of a plan you're thinking i think i could probably get this narrowed down i'll get rid of that rack rack piece i'll get rid of I'll get rid of that whatever else piece. Maybe, maybe it's technology and oil that we're going to focus on. How, yeah. How do you sell that to people who are in the business already? Um, well, the tech one was my, was my bread and butter in my background. Uh, there, there, there were a couple of guys there, really nice lads, and they were kind of do, doing a placement every other month each. Um, and, and that was easy to grab onto and show them how, how to push forward. One of them left and went traveling. The other guy is now our sales director, Matt Southworth. Um, and we essentially, we built, built it around him. Um, initially, it was difficult because making people accountable for their actions is something that they don't like. You know, you, in order to progress, you've got to lay yourself bare, right? And you've got to admit to your failings and look at where your positives are to build around. And he found it really difficult. I remember he, relatively early on he came and he came to me and said look i'll hand him a notice and he said yeah why why are you picking on me why are you sat with me all the time because you know there are loads of other people now i said matt i can see the potential in you if, if if you can follow this i promise you i'll get you to where where you want to be so remind me again why you came to recruitment he told me why he said right give me six months if you're not on your way to getting towards that then leave no problem at all uh, and, and he, he, I guess he bought into me or what I was saying, and he, you know, he's still here now, and he owns a piece of the company. Yeah. Um, and and did... and tell me, so you, you've done a bit of a turnaround. It's two thousand and seven, so two years later, two two thousand and nine. We all know, we all know what happened. Yes. So you just got it around. You've got new things in place. Walk us through. Walk us through that next that next period. Um, I, I guess we were really fortunate, and I, I don't think it was. It, look, this wasn't any preconceived strategy of mine or the business, but we weren't just led by the UK economy at the time because we had a very, very strong, or by its small, um, oil and gas arm. So the dictation of that was very much about global oil prices, as opposed to you know the the IT uh, business that we had, which was UK centric, which was really struggling because nobody was spending any money. So at that time, we've become slightly more balanced. Our NFI is, is starting to become a lot greater on oil and gas. So we put our resources into that, make sure we're keeping a certain amount of input into tech so that we're, 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 we're washing our face with it. We're continuing to build relationships bit by bit that we can make the most of as soon as, as, soon as things turn good again. Um, so we were really lucky on that front. We, we had a guy called um, Matt Holmes, who's now MD of One Zero. Uh, and he became a director very, very quickly. He's the other person we built around for oil and gas. Very, very talented guy. He knew how to how to expand within oil and gas because he understood the industry a lot greater than me. And I suppose that's where we put our emphasis into while the UK economy was struggling. And I guess we were fortunate to be able to do so. So you were obviously uh, doing a lot of remote recruitment then. Uh, was that was that something new to learn back then? Where you're you're interviewing people all around the world. Um, I, I guess the 
the the global piece, yes, but the, the recruitment of tech. We we when when I came in, we concentrated on doing the the London southeast market anyway. Okay. So the, 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 I suppose the basics of recruitment remotely, only interviewing on the telephone, that kind of stuff was was commonplace. It, it was very typical of the IT recruitment market then anyway, unless you were doing it very much in the geography you were sat in. All right. Okay. Excellent. So, at what point? did you launch your office in Houston? And what was that process like? Was that a daunting experience, launching an international office? Um, it was. Um, but at the time, you've got a, a bunch of ambitious guys who, you know, we, we've got a very young leadership team at that point, and, and we genuinely thought that we could take anybody on. We were, we were top suppliers globally for, for permanent oil and gas for some some big big firms, and we were beating off the big boys. And I, I guess we thought we could do anything. Um, so we, we we built Houston in 2012, um, just before the crash. <laughs> well, we got, oh, we got three, a couple, three couple years, years did you? We we were very lucky to a certain extent, but it also became a poison chalice. We we won an RPO. Uh, for Maersk, okay. um, their, their, their US office. Uh, there's a project called Chisonga, um, which we, we embedded a couple of people on their site uh, in Houston. It was brilliant because straight away, you, you've, got, you've got stuff turning around, you've got contractors going out, you've got revenues coming in. But it was the first one we'd won. We made quite a few mistakes with it. And unfortunately, after the project had left that part of the world, the mistakes we made is we were left with an office which would essentially become a delivery office. Mm-hmm. You you remove that food from the table and we've got a load of guys who either don't know how to or have forgotten how to sell and generate new business and we rested on our laurels, quite frankly. Yeah, it's, you know, I obviously come across a lot of oil and gas recruiters and I think a lot of them would struggle to get, it, to get and perform into IT recruitment businesses because especially when that boom was happening, they just did become delivery, deliver, like delivery recruiters. It's a very different skill, I find, to, to what it is to be an IT recruiter, unless, unless they're going outside the majors and that. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we, when we were really making hay in it, it was before the portals came in. Um, and it's before everything became very much centralized, huge, big internal recruitment teams. Um, and I remember talking to one of our guys who uh, recruited for geologists in our UK office. Uh, and I said to him, OK, so talk me through your processes. So you take a candidate to market. How, what, what's your ratio? Calls made to getting interviews for, for, for you, the geologist you've got. And he goes one for one. Yeah. And so, so my background in tech, that's like, what? What do you mean one for one? Except you take them to market, everybody wants them. And the, the, the whole basis of the role was building these networks of, of candidates. And that is very much, I suppose, a precursor to why we've done so well in tech recently. It's, it's, I think it's very much leaning off that, the background of how the, the oil and gas, especially the subsurface guys, tended to recruit because it was very different to anything I'd ever known before. So it took a, a huge, steep learning curve for me as well. Honestly. It's, it's interesting. When I did IT recruitment, I did it for four years. Uh, it, it, it was very job-centric. And, yeah. it, you know, the, cl- the client was always king, but I see it changing across multiple disciplines now where, you know, internal teams have got stronger, like uh, advertising's got stronger. So a lot of us are being pushed into finding our own little niche and trying to get famous for that, which 
means that we're really working towards getting the best candidates in niche areas where we take them out to market. So it's it is like I finding it is changing. Yeah, very much so. I think look, it's different discipline by discipline, of course. But I think that the niche you go without a doubt. But I think one of the things that we're really trying to focus on at the moment is build building our own communities of candidates. Um, you know, it's it, everybody's done the beer and pizza nights, right? Where you you know you have a, a tech meetup for your, your .NET guys or your whatever. Um, and I think we're we're now trying to find what the next level of, of that engagement is going to be. You know, we, we've, we've sponsored events, we've done uh, thought thought pieces and things like that. And I think there is going to be something else that uh, that takes it to the next level. And I think that's what everybody's searching for mm. currently. It, and I think with it, the extension of the way LinkedIn are now changing the groups and communities on there, I think there's going to be a push for people to, to remove their communities bit by bit away from um, a platform that's owned by somebody else and somehow put it on their own platforms. Uh, but I suppose getting people there in, in the first place and keeping them engaged whilst you're doing your day-to-day recruitment is 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 the, the stuff of full-time marketeers. It is, and well, our job, our job, I see, is is going to be more and more led by marketing. And um, but I suppose it's running your business, so the marketing happens in the background, and your diary is full of calls. And you're able you're able to deliver on that it, within tech recruitment. It's going to be very hard to to do that when there's people like GitHub and, and that that do it excellently. And, yeah, and uh, Stack Overflow, and they've almost done it the right way. They built the community first, and then yeah. they put the job board, and then in behind the job board, they'll have permanent placements, and and that's. That seems to be the, where a lot of things are, are going that, 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 that direction. So when, when, when you look at your, 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 biz, your business now, what, what excites you most about the global market? Um, I, I think what excites me very much with looking globally, at, for ourselves, we're in the UK and the Americas, right? So it'd be very difficult for me to comment on anywhere outside there. The UK market is famously massively saturated, and I think that you have to have super competitive edge to to continue to become a success there. I think the States is where the potential is. Every, every man and dog I know in recruitment, particularly in tech recruitment, is getting out to the States, and I think that's the that's where the growth will come in a very very short space of time if you do it right. You know, you look at look at the the, the recent Frank Group results that have come out. You know, and, and that is very much driven by the success of their U.S. business. Uh, and as we all know, it's different over there. They are slightly behind us when it comes to recruitment. And I think they're going to catch up very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I see the States as, as, as the place to be. It, it, it's interesting. I, I've been following it quite closely for a while. I'm sure, I'm sure you have, too. And, you know, Walters and Page have been out there for 30 years, 40 years. Or whatever long, but they were they, they were out there and they never really scaled. But mm. S three have cracked it, and then everybody's copied their processes, added a bit of color to it, and then you just see all these guys leaving S three, setting up their own companies, scaling Faden, scaling GQR, scaling the Frankfurt, and their 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 results are 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 exceptional, and it's because. The Americans aren't behind us when it comes to contract recruitment. They're, they're actually very good at that. 
but their, their permanent hires have, have, have been dominated a lot by one man bands over the years. And yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, singular headhunters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Americans are like, Americans are still obsessed with that in setting up being an, an independent headhunter, whereas the UK recruitment thing is all about building and scaling a business and, and being part of that. So it, right now, it's a really exciting time for anybody that takes a shot and goes over there. Yeah, very much so. And um, uh, one of the interesting things about the States is, you know, we, we, we call it a country, but realistically, state by state, everything is so different mm. um, from from your your statutes and your laws and, and, and really, really importantly, your taxes. But but on top of that, you it's it's the it's the the cultural differences. You know, we we, we have a thing in, in Houston where we, we call it the Texas. Yes. You know, people find it very, very hard to say no to you, right? Mm. You know, if you if you work a UK tech market and you, and you get um, a, a departmental manager, an HR, somebody of interest that you want to talk to, to say, right, Andy, I'll meet you at two o'clock in London at this place. If they're going to meet you, you know, damn right, they want something from you, right? Otherwise, they, they're too busy, haven't got the time. Yeah. In, in the states, you could have a meeting with. Not not everybody, but certainly in southern states, you you could set up meetings left, right, and centre, and it, the the skill there is discerning who's actually being polite, who wants to dance the dance with you, so you can do some business in in, in a few months' time, you know, and who just fancies a free beer, yeah, um, and, it's, <laughs> it, it, and and that that's a critical change of thinking that we have to have when we go over there, amongst many many others. And so I I I've recruited in Australia, and if you get a meeting you'll get business. I yeah. recruited in Canada. And if you get a meeting, you'll get a smile. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's it. And it, which, which leads you to thinking, how can I build a business that, that, that works for this? Because in, in Australia, it, 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 is about, it is about getting the meeting and it is about whining and dining the, the client and being quite job-centric. And in America, it's just a big product. Find the right person, bring them to market. Do what the geologist recruiter did, as you mentioned, and, yeah. and then have a meeting. It's it's a it's a different way of thinking, different way of approaching the marketplace, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, we've had a lot of success in the last twelve months of our tech practice in, in the states relative to our. F- we've only been in there in tech a couple of years. The last twelve months, it's really got going, and for us. The difference between there and the way that we work here is here we're we're relatively guerrilla warfare. We've got some great blue chip clients, but we do a lot with SMEs. We do a lot with startups. We do a lot with new businesses where you're going to have a massive proliferation of different companies within your individual portfolio for your desk. Over there, we we believe that it's going to be very much garnering from from large accounts, from systems integrators to those types of organizations that are, are going to need people across their clients. And I think for us, building relationships with those people, and there are so many different touch points you can have in those organizations. Mm. And th- th- I think that's really where you, you, you'll get great success. And for, for us, I think the people in those organizations are a little bit more open to talk to you than, than they are here, where you, you literally have to go through that very sterile environment of doing RFIs and tenders and things like that. 
Um, and it, it, I think you can really prove your services over there. If you if you can make somebody else's career shine by showing that you're doing a great job for them, so they can grow their department or or, or whatever it is, then I, I think they're very much open to that because it's it's almost a little bit of that American dream type mm-hmm. thing again. You know, you, you make me a star, and you're going to come along for the ride with us. And we've got a couple of great accounts out there, and the relationships we have with, with those guys are, are unbelievable. You know, c- c- as close as you could be to friends. And that's the way it should be, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, Andy, what does a what does a managing director do on a weekly basis? What does your week look like? Um, <laughs> that's a good question because it changes on, on a regular basis. I mean, at the moment we are in the throes of uh, moving CRM system, developing a new website, and moving offices in London. So a lot of my time is is consumed with parts of those projects we're also trying to uh, extend our well-being scheme that we bought in last year and bring in a few new partners for that um, but to be honest with you I still sit on the shop floor for the majority of the time um, I still try and make myself available to particularly the sales director our client solutions director and any of the consultants that kind of need a bit of a you know an, an old head um, so I try to spend the majority of my week on projects that can actually help the business on going forward um, but make sure I leave a certain amount of that in the week so that you know I, I can be there for the guys. Because I think, for me, what I've what, what I've, I've heard from other organisations and people who've worked in them as companies are growing is that they start to feel like just a number when they never see the MD. When you know there's the guy who just can suddenly flashes past with his briefcase and what have you. Um, and I try and make myself available, but I, the mistakes I've made previously is making myself always available and being two heads down in helping them and not actually looking at the full growth of the business so it's again on an ongoing basis still learning curve for me what uh, what other mistakes have you made oh, how long is a piece of string we could give, be here for give a the, long time give the top five if you could go back and change. Um, um, I think I think one of the things that for me is an, an important thing is is actually believing people's actions rather than the words. Um, and I, I think that there are, be it from uh, candidates, clients, colleagues, I think believing what they're saying rather than what they're telling you by, by what they're doing is something that I, I'm increasingly seeing as being important. Um, I, I think that it's... It's difficult when you work with people, right? Because we, we're all amateur psychologists, aren't we? You know, that's kind of what we do, right? And, and I think if you just rely on your skill to read people, if you have one, it can, and don't have a framework around that, it can become extremely dangerous. Um, I think another mistake, which has been rectified during the last sort of 12, 18 months, is becoming um, insular uh, and not looking outside of your own business at what the rest of the world is doing. You know, I, I've, I'm part of the RDLC network, which I'm sure you're aware mm-hmm. of. Um, and the, the information shared amongst that, that, that group of peers is, is incredible. I was so cynical about it to begin with. You know, I, I, I thought it was just going to be people trying to have one over on each other based on how great their business is doing. Because my reaction with, with other senior recruiters was at events where, you know, <laughs> For one, it's for a measuring up just yeah. yeah and, and I've, I've never ever had the slightest bit of interest in that I've, look there's there's enough piece of the recruitment pie to go around for everybody um, and it's been enlightening and I've built some really good relationships and for the best on, on the, the best part you learn something mm. new but the, the worst part is it's an affirmation of the stuff that you're doing is actually alright you know if you, if, you, if you were to believe 
um, the, the, the general loudest shouters on the likes of LinkedIn and social media, they would potentially have you believe that the world is a different place to what it actually is behind closed doors. And I always thought, well, who's going to let me behind their closed door? Because we could be a competitor. But once you, once you do start to do that and, and share war stories, uh, and actually, you know, when you, I suppose when you're at the top, it's very difficult to do that with people that, are, that you work with in the organisation um, that maybe don't have the same view as you. And for me, one of the biggest things is sharing with people that are in a similar position to you and lending off the experience of other people that have made it and done it. Um, there are a couple of guys that, that have been very, very instrumental in the growth of S3 and Frank who, who have lent me some wonderful salient thoughts recently, the last sort of year or so. And I think that's, that's helped us grow in confidence in terms of what we're doing. Actually, we're along the right path, even though we are very different to them. It, it's, that's, a great, that's a great point. And, you, you know, like I, I have a small remote team. I work from, I have a little office. I can get, I try and not be too insular, but then I try and not be too obsessive on what's out there and the internet and, you know, yeah. all, all, all the rest. So, what I've done recently is I've created a WhatsApp group of 10 other Rectorects that are in the UK. And, yeah. and I find it really beneficial just to, just to go, okay, well, here's what I'm doing well, here's what they're doing well. And then I find that we've all shared a lot of information, whereas before I would have been afraid, oh, they're going to find my IP or they're going to, yes. you know. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. No, no, do, do you know, it's exactly the same, the same mentality that, that I had and now I have. Um, and I think, look, information is so readily available now. I think sometimes it's making sure that you can see through the white noise or suppose, hear through the white noise, I guess. Um, and I, I would say that one of the dangers then is, is then believing what everybody tells you. And I think it, it's picking out the extractions that are going to be relative to your business and relevant for where you, where, what your aim is, what your cultures are, and where you're going to go to. Because somebody else's might not be the same for you. But I would guess for most lessons there's going to be some kind of transfer that you can learn. Even if it's actually, we know that already, we're already doing it, great stuff. Other people are behind us, you know? Um, yeah, it, the, the most important thing to companies like yours is to be able to grow and to be able to attract people in. I find, I find it's, it's recruitment companies struggle to tell their own story in a, in a way that differentiates themselves. And yeah, you know, thanks very much for coming on this podcast because, you know, if somebody ever comes to me and they're suitable, I'll be able to say, actually, have a listen to Andy. He's a good guy. There's their story. You know, ask me some more specific questions after you listen to that. I get asked to work roles all the time by companies. And I say, okay, great. Come on the podcast. At least tell me your story. Help me get your message out there. Oh, that wouldn't be my scene. It, it blows my mind how, how insular recruitment companies can be yeah very much so and as i said i would say for many years that was me without a doubt as, and, but you know what what do we all do what do our buyers do what do our candidates do we go off our previous experiences mm. you know if your previous experiences um in, in, in a pitch in a pitch meeting where where you're up against people that used to be recruiters and then they're looking down on you or you, you're on you're on a call with a briefing call with other recruiters and they ask stupid questions or you know you, you're you know you're at some events do and the guy next to you is lauding about how good their company is then of course it makes you insular and i think that the competitive nature of recruitment i think is always going to remain but 
I, I, you know, there used to be this kind of adage: if you left the business, you were dead to them, sort of thing, right? You know, we we we've had um, we had our, our summer barbecue for our head office a few weeks ago. I had um, the MDs of three other recruitment businesses come, two of whom are in our space, and uh, four ex employees came. And it's the, the world is changing, and you know, and you never know. We, we've we've had numerous people leave our business for various reasons, and then a few years later come back. Um, and I think it's really really important that you that you, you do keep your head down on the quality of what the business is doing, but have a look at how the world is changing because, look, there's, 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 as I said before, there's enough slices of the pie for everybody if you're good enough and you've got that quality and that niche. All right. All right, Andy. I could talk to you about this all day, but we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for coming on. and You, you were really interesting, so, so thanks so much, and I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate the chat. Thanks a lot. Speak to you soon. Take care, Andy. Massive thank you to Andy for coming on the podcast. I really enjoy interviewing people at the at the top of recruitment organisations. I think they're they're becoming more and more open and engaging and realizing that, you know, to get good recruiters to come work for you, you really need to kind of bear your soul, you need to show what you're all about, what you, what you believe in and what you stand for. And I just thought he came across as, as really open and honest and, you know, not somebody who thinks that they, they even know it all now. And I like, I really do, and I mentioned it in the intro, I really like that he reaches out to his competitors and he's joined a he's joined a group the the rdcl i think he, he called it i think that might be the pirates group i'm not sure um where there are a bunch of recruitment business owners they get together they share information they network they do all of that all in the interest of making their individual businesses better because the market's global now you know, we're not all just recruiting in our backyard anymore. You know, it's all about being more niche and covering more distance. And th- there's so much out there to go after if you're in one of these scalable, flexible, nimble recruitment firms. So, yeah, again, big thank you to Andy. Really liked him. Um, and hopefully we'll get another great guest on later in the week. Take care. God bless. Go get some.